some costly things because what's so amazing is some people go into divorce thinking well if we have separate bank accounts it's all fine like and there's a lot of misconceptions in finance that i'll talk about of people who think they're protecting their assets and i'll kind of explain what it's like because my reality is a lot of your listeners are having a fucked up marriage is my sense like yeah. the marriage rates in our profession are higher as we can allude to and I have no doubt there's there are people who are listening who are going to be like, this is going to be me in six months or a year. Hey, everybody, welcome back to How's My Financial Health Doc podcast. And this time around, we're going to have a topic that, you know, most find unpleasant to talk about. But I think it is important that we do at least chat about it at least once. And I suspect that it won't be just once. I suspect that we'll chat about it from many different perspectives and vantage point about this particular topic. And this is the topic of divorce. We see divorce in all aspects of our life not just in our professional life, but also in our personal life. We see it with our maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe neighbors, maybe colleagues. And it's obviously devastating from many perspectives, emotionally, psychologically, and finally, even financially. So on today's show, what we're gonna talk about is how does divorce impact one person from a financial perspective? The show will begin with a colleague of mine who is going to be describing the financial impact of his divorce. And I want to thank Dave for being so candid and transparent about his own personal life and sharing with us his own story. Then I'm going to move to a second part where we talk about the different laws governing divorce among our different provinces in Canada. It's just to share with you a snippet of what the different family laws could look like in different parts of our country. And again, I'm not a lawyer, and so please take this with a grain of salt and just to learn that there are some differences, but to know specifically what are the different specific differences, you must consult, obviously, your lawyer. So here we go with the episode on how does divorce impact your financial security. How's my financial health doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome everybody to How's My Financial Health Doc podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that is really important because we are physicians and we are nurses and we are nurse practitioners and physician assistants and we work in a very stressful environment and a very stressful context right now especially with covid so the topic that we're going to be talking about today is you know marriage and divorce and why are we talking about this in a financial podcast is because we live it it's part of our life But having a divorce actually changes many, many things. Obviously, our relationship with our uh, 
uh, ex-spouses, our children, but also our relationship with money and how that uh, is translated in terms of our finance. Today, I got a good friend of mine who's here with me, uh, David. Well, thanks for having me, Vu. Uh, I've listened to your podcast uh, for the past year, and uh, I never thought we'd have a discussion like this. You and I have been um, shooting the shit about this sort of stuff for ages, but never have we got to this topic. And I think this is a really important one, and I'm, I'm happy we're both going to tackle this. Thank you very much. And you know what? I First of all, I want to thank you for coming on this show and sharing this with us. And so, David, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience. How, how did that go? Yeah, look, I, I think there's a few things that people have to realize is that no one gets married with the expectation that they're going to get divorced. So everyone goes into it feeling wonderful. The reality of the matter is, let's say 50% of the population gets divorced. And probably amongst healthcare professionals, and especially in a career path that you and I have chosen in emergency medicine, that number I'm going to say is much higher. If we add the current milieu, which is COVID, which has certainly been a, a very challenging stress test on a lot of relationships, relationships are challenging. And like all people, and like um, all professions, people are exposed and relationships fail. And if there's one thing you want to do financially, it's not to get divorced. You know what? You hear these statistics all the time. And I at least uh, hear it from, you know, financial advisors all the time. The, the biggest detriment to your financial health is a divorce. Um, and so when we think about, you know, how much money goes out the door and how much we have to, you know, give to the other spouse, uh, it's definitely uh, quite a wealth destroyer. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, not necessarily the, the story, but uh, what happened and um, how did that impact you, first of all, emotionally, but, you know, uh, family and financially? Look, I'm extremely blessed to have a wonderful divorce. And I think that's a very important thing, which is uh, first and foremost, you have to love your children and it's all about the kids. And if you are, you have to love your children and you have to get over the emotional loss. There's a financial loss and the emotional loss. And this podcast view isn't to talk about emotions, but certainly that's an important thing that to move on, you need to get over the emotional side. The financial side is a very important thing. And look, if you're going to get married and you, ideally you marry someone who makes the exact same income as you, so then divorce becomes less costly. But as we know, the reality is that's not often the case and that's not always the case. And I think a few misconceptions, people who are probably listening is I don't think people really realize what actually happens financially when a divorce happens. Well, tell us your experience. What happened? Well, my experience is no different than anyone else's. And I think people need to listen, which is, and I'm not an attorney or a mediator, I'm a physician, but the way the law works is from the day that you start living with someone, either common law or from you get married, depending on when that happens. If you've been dating someone for a long time and you're living together a long time, after you become common law until the day that you separate, that whole period of time is a consideration of your income. So the courts look at how much money you had when you guys were common law or married, whichever came first, and how much you had at the time of separation. Then what they do is they take that number, your wealth, your partner's wealth, they chop it in half and divide it by two. 
So it's, you might come in and what this can mean. I have a colleague who's a physician and she had inherited a ton of debt from her partner who separated. So she took on a ton of his debt from professional training. Um, so she, you take on the debt the assets, the liabilities of the person from the time that you cohabitate and the time that you're common law until the time you're divorced. So people have to realize that that's the home. That's every single penny that you've earned. So if you have a, a significant income discrepancy or there's wealth in the family that needs to be protected, you need to be serious about thinking about what you want to do to protect yourself in terms of one of the unsexiest words in finance, which is a prenuptial agreement. You mentioned something that is, I think, really interesting. So the first thing is that person took on the debt. So I've always had in my mind that you obviously separate the asset, but you may also mention taking on the debt. Uh, and so if I'm marrying someone who has significant debt at time of separation, I'm taking on that person's debt as well, or at least half of it. You take on the debt that's accrued in the course of the relationship. So if you and I started dating Vu and then you decided you wanted to go back and do an MBA and yeah. it's going to be $70,000 a year and you borrow money to do that, then that would be part of our relationship uh, a wealth. So it's not pre-existing. It's what you incur over the course of the marriage. So if you took a line of credit to um, finance your studies in the course of your relationship, that would be considered the responsibility of both people at the time of separation. And that's, that's hard. That hits. Yeah. That wasn't my issue, but I think it's super important because these are things that people don't realize. So the way things work is when you separate is you take all the money you guys had together, the house, the assets, the cars, every single thing that has value and liquidity and you divide it in half. You may have contributed more, you may have contributed less, but that's the way it works. And then moving forward, the way things work is they look at two different things. There's child support and spousal support. Mm. I don't know if you know about either of these things. Uh, I do know about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak generically. Spousal yeah. support is a, a taxable uh, benefit, um, meaning that you have to um, declare that as income. And what that is, is to compensate the person who earns less so that your child can have a similar standard of living at both homes. Mm -hmm. And that's optional. And then there's child support, which is you got two or three kids. This is how old they are. This is how I make. This is how much you make. And the courts kind of, and there's formulas to determine how much one pays the other. And then every year for every different expense, that's big schools, camps, toys, anything that big, you pay in a ratio of your income. So if you make 900,000 and I make 100,000, you would pay 90% of all fixed costs on top of all support, all the big costs, schools, camps, any big thing on top of it. So if there's a big income disparity between the two parties, you can see that it can become quite costly. Absolutely. And so does that go until the uh, child is 18 or what age does it stop? 
You know, it depends. Uh, typically, until the child is in university, or depending on your agreement, till the child no longer lives with you. Um, these are. It's certainly well. The child is is eighteen and under, and mm -hmm. how much longer is independent. Um, but the key is, it's a long time, and it's adjusted every year. So the reality is, you and your partner and your ex partner. Not only are you, um, it's imperative that you continue to have a good relationship for the wellness of your family and yourself, but also you cheer on your spouse's financial health because their success financially offloads your responsibility or benefits you depending on which side of the coin you're on. Right. So if you are paying spousal support or child support, if they are doing well, obviously you're, the burden is less on you. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I hear about, and, you know, I've had the unfortunate role of, you know, getting divorced at a time where not many of my colleagues of our age match had done it. And I've kind of been through a lot of uh, talking and discussions with docs. And I think there's a real misperception, which is a lot of people think that, you know what, if I keep the money in my corporation and we have separate accounts, then that's my money. And I won't have to divide that. You know, I always tell people financially, it makes no difference whose money is whose money in the world of divorce. So when I tell couples, you're incorporated, he's not, spend all his money, try to save the money in your corporation, live off his income, which you, you know, is not incorporated, because it makes no difference. If you get divorced, you're chopping the assets in half. So don't think of it as your account and his account because the court doesn't think of it that way. Very important point. Now you mentioned, you know, what's yours, what's mine. How about the assets that you bring into the marriage before the marriage? How does the court look at that? Yeah, so anything that comes in before is not divided up as part of the assets uh, upon separation, but there are things like inheritances that could become complicated or gifts. For example, Vu, I might decide that uh, I want to give money to a child to buy a house and I might want to give them a down payment on their house, but what if they then separate who does that money to belong to? And these sort of things become dicey. So if people are gifting or giving money to their children to help purchase a vehicle, a cottage, an asset, it's very important that they seek the appropriate legal advice to protect the asset. And they it's not to be unromantic to make assumptions, but the reality is a lot of relationships fail. And if you want to protect your family's income, when you gift money to your children, if that's something one intends to do, make sure it's protected. Now, coming back to the question of what I bring to the marriage. So let's just say, you know what, I have a condo uh, and I, I bought it as a resident and it's paid off. It's my condo. And now I'm getting married to, you know, XYZ person. And when I came into the marriage, that condo was already paid off and I already owned it. And now that we're married, uh, and I'm I'm the breadwinner and my wife is not, and we buy a house. Obviously, that house is what is purchased during the marriage that gets split in two. What are your sense of that condo coming in into the into the marriage? Is that split as well? 
I'm not a, a lawyer and please tell your listeners not to uh, go by this, but I will say this, if you're, if it's a rental property that you've paid off the condo and you're earning rental income on it in the course of your income, a course of your cohabitation and marriage, my sense is that rental income will be income that you earned in the course of your marriage. So yes, you own the condo, but the income that it's generated through the course of the marriage will probably be divided. So I think you bring up a very good point. I think it's a point that needs to be repeated is that all these calculations are quite complicated and you and I are not lawyers and you and I are not accountants and definitely we do not practice family law. And so I, whatever we have as misconceptions, we bring that with us to the marriage and to the divorce. And uh, at the end of the day, the financial impact is humongous. You mentioned earlier, you know, prenuptial. Uh, and it's a word that nobody wants to talk about when we're romantically in love and, and we're all gooey eyes. Do you have a sense of how many of our colleagues as physicians have prenuptials? Yeah, look, I think second marriages tend to be more protected than first. I think for most physicians who traditionally fall in love early, uh, maybe meet their partner when they're in school or in university and they're low earning incomes, they don't think about that stuff. Like, you know, I met my partner when we were 18 and 22. I never thought about my income or her income. We're a team and we were a team and I, I never thought about it. And the prenup would have been the least thing for me. Neither of us came from dramatic positions of wealth in our families. So that wasn't anything that our parents had pressured and anything like that. And I had no red flags, like most people who get married. Um, so I didn't think about it. I think for my friends and people who've gone through second marriages, they realize the income hit the first time round. Because remember, if it's a big income disparity and that person decides to, let's say, have another family and stop working, let's say they have kids and take time off, let's say they quit their job, you still pay them based on the income every year they make. And if you have a hard time controlling your partner, imagine how much harder it is to control your ex-partner. We talked a lot about, you know, financial impact. Obviously, you know, there's all the assets that we think about, the house, the car, you know, the bank accounts and all that. What about um, things that we don't really think about? Um, life insurance, uh, those type of things. What, what happens to those? Yeah, so you, all those um, streams, whether you're your RSP, remember all your RSP payments are gonna be split in half in terms of what you have. If you have a life insurance policy, the asset value will be split. But the thing what the court does is also because you have a duty to provide support if you have children in the marriage, you have a duty to be able to generate income after the fact. So the court will often force people to take a life insurance policy, often it's term, so that in the event that you were to die before, let's say, the kid was grown up, that you have the money to provide them with support for the course of their um, teenage and childhood years. So many people, you know, in the same ways that a lot of people you talk to who start to think about life insurance when they get kids and when they have kids, not get kids. Yeah. Um, that is a time in divorce where people realize they have to take out a policy to protect future payments in the event of a premature death. Which, which makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. I mean, when we are on this earth and we are, you know, thinking of having kids and we do have kids, we definitely have to think about the kids, no doubt. 
Yeah, that's everything. And you want to be able to provide for your kids. And uh, look, things became complicated because ideally you fall in love again and you find happiness and then you are entwined in another situation. And I think, you know, the hardest part for a lot of people is having been burnt once emotionally, financially, how do I get back on the horse? How do I heal so I can fall and not feel vulnerable? And I think that's important. But you realize that in divorce, you have to really dam up your retirement plans, your insurance stuff, because if you pass, who's going to look after your kid, your stepkids and stuff, it really forces you to reevaluate. And remember, most people, if you're the person who's the high income earner, you've probably taken a huge lump sum of money out of your medical professional corporation, if you're incorporated, to pay your divorce settlement. So you might have incurred this huge tax benefit if you have to take out the money from the corp to pay out the spouse, or especially if you want to buy the home or, you know, there's huge transfers of assets. So having to take money out of the corp, pay the tax on that to actually settle the divorce, that that really does hurt. Absolutely. You know, Vu, the end of the day is most people who listen to your podcast, who are healthcare professionals, they do okay. They can work hard. They can make money. The money comes back. You have to get yourself over the emotional loss. The money comes back. But yes, if you can imagine with today's house price, if you just decided to take your home and say, I want to buy my partner out of his or her half of the house, that's going to be a huge lump sum. And you're going to have to either take out a second line of credit, a mortgage, or you're going to have to empty the corp. And, and I'm sure you've been telling your listeners, there's nothing worse than, you know, having to take out 100,000, 500,000, a million, 2 million, 200,000, 50,000 from your corp, knowing what that actually is after tax. Now, I mean, just to, uh, just to be fair, Dave, I don't, I don't care so much about the money. Uh, it's, really? more, it's more about the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, you know what? Money comes back. You can always work hard and make it back. So it's not so much about the money, but the money represents something though. I don't know if you've ever read that book, uh, Your Life or Your Money. When you, when you understand that every piece of money is a piece of life energy. And so when you, when you lose that type of money, it's really not the money that's important. It's the life energy that's important. And you know, back to your point, when you want to rebuild not only do you have to survive the emotional stress, but you now have to give more of your life energy, which is the more important point. It's not so much the money, but I, I do appreciate what you what you're saying. So now, going forward, it did, it did impact you. What have you learned? And from a financial perspective, what have you done differently this time? I view marriage, and I'm not old fashioned. I'm very progressive. I don't look at it as if I make more. I can spend more. I think part of a generation that maybe you and I grew up with, and I don't want to generalize, where the father worked, the mother didn't work, the father made the business decisions. I'm not part of that school. And nor am I part of the school that says, if I earn more, I have more power at the bargaining table in terms of making financial decisions. I really believe successful relationships require a team approach. And I think when you look at your earning power and your spending power, it has to be what do you and your partner make per year? What do you and your partner, what are your future incomes? What are your ceilings? What can you afford? 
And I think you have to think about that. And I think you have to plan. And as you have more children, as your families grow, it's really about securing your future. And I think divorce being such an uncertainty that most people don't expect, it's so important that you plan and have savings because you never know if or when that rainy day will happen. Given what you just said there, going forward, have you changed how you how you view how you're going to tactically move forward with your finances? Has that changed? Not really a little bit? I think every situation's different. I think it probably depends on the income, collective income of you and your partner in marriage one and marriage two, and then you pivot appropriately. Um, if you're in a relationship where in your second marriage, you have a higher combined uh, household income, then you have opportunities that you might not have had that existed. If you're in a position where you have a lower combined exist, um, family income, you're going to have to live accordingly. I think the most important thing is to live within your means. And you and I have talked about it. And I know you've podcasted about this, which is the concept of, you know, the family doctor who makes $300,000 a year, but, you know, saves 100,000 versus the cardiologist who makes a million and saves two, uh, 200,000. Who's going to have a harder time retiring with the lifestyles that they're used to. And I think that you have to live within your means and every situation is going to be different. Have I adjusted? Yes, I've adjusted based on my new combined family income. And I've had to live within the means that my partner and I have. And is that so different? No, I mean, I certainly did that in my first marriage. It's just that you realize that most people, if you have dependents, you now have to budget not just for you, not just for you and your partner, but for your whole family. And for some people, it also might be your in-laws or your parents who need you not just uh, emotionally, but also financially. Yeah, no, no, I think you're absolutely correct. When we when we are married, we're no longer just ourselves. We, we are married to our spouse, but we're, we're now a family unit and however you want to define family, right? And so that's a very good point. So I want to circle back and just ask you a question because both you and I are emergency doctors. And just recently, there was an article that published that says 80% of emergency doctors in Canada are burnt out. And obviously being burnt out really does not help our professional and our personal lives. And so from a financial perspective, just taking on that lens, what do you think are some of the high risk factors for physicians or emergency physicians when it comes to marriage and relationship and divorce? Do you see a link? Do you not see a link? How do you view this? So I'm happy you brought this up. I think the study you're talking about was the one that came out this summer in CGEM that said burnout rates was 86% in emergency physicians in 2019. Remember, this is pre-COVID. And 6% of physicians, emergency physicians in 2019 had contemplated suicide. Now, those are horrible statistics. In 2020, a group in Hamilton came out with the first 10 weeks of COVID and looked at if there was a burnout change in, amongst emergency physicians, so only to that cohort, and there was no change. And I think a lot of that first wave of COVID, there was a lot of banging pots and a lot of you know support and heroes and flag waving and everyone was a family and there was so much camaraderie. 
I think in the second wave, things are shit. And I think in the second wave, burnout is much higher. And I think you and I, Vu, see it on a daily basis in our nursing colleagues, our NPs, our PAs, our docs. People just no longer want to do that work. They, they just, they're sick of it. We're human, right? We've seen a lot of this terrible stuff going on, but we're human too. And I think burnout is a big thing. And I think um, sitting in the front line of the battlefield was is certainly a high risk um, situation for burnout. And certainly burnout is, is a, a big factor that contributes to marital strife. Intuitively, do you see a, a huge link between your work, the burnout and your finances, or it's pretty kept much separate for you? I think they're a little bit linked. I mean, if you spoke to me in April when I saw my portfolio or the end of March go down by 40, 50%, um, I was pretty nervous. My father's an economist. He, he trained in Chicago with Milton Friedman, who he did his PhD with. So that's the mentality that I was raised with, with the son of this Milton Friedman PhD. My dad said, David, this will be the most prompt recovery in the history of the business cycle. Because once we get out of this, we will just implode, explode. And we're seeing this now. We're seeing, despite the fact that COVID is burning out of control, with just promise, and you know how markets are priced based on expectations, we're now at the TSX is about 17,600 today. It's unbelievable to see that recovery. Um, so I, I think that, that business health is something that certainly has a toll. But it is what it is. I think the most important thing, and I say this when I give talks to young physicians or residents, is I think you have to look at your job and you have to, I think the days of uh, emergency doctors doing 20 shifts a month, 25 shifts a month and nothing else, like you and I did, Vu, when we first started, is done. And I think you have to have non-governmental sources of income. I think you need to have side gigs that are not uh, covered by the government in case there's policy change or party change. Um, you need to be resourceful and you have to have side gigs that are Monday to Friday, nine to five, because at the end of the day, we both know emergency medicines are 24 seven jobs and 24 seven jobs are not great in relationships. No, uh, they, they absolutely are not. And it's funny you bring up this point because I've come to that realization maybe four or five years ago. And like you, uh, I did 20 to 25 shifts a month uh, while I was still doing my master's and my MBA back then. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and so those type of things don't happen anymore. And, and that, to be honest, I'm not sure that I want our brand new grads doing that, doing the same thing we used to do in a new environment where it's even crazier. And so that's not sustainable. You know, some of the best piece of advice I got, and, and maybe I didn't listen, it was from a colleague and he'll go nameless. And he was a, an elder statesman. And, and when I started, I came out working hard. I wanted to buy that first home, pay it off. And he looked at me and, he's, and Paul said to me, Dave, why are you working so hard? And I said, you know what? I don't have kids. I want to work hard. I want to uh, pay off all my debt. And he looked and he paused and he said, you know what? Your life's a lot more fun when you're 30 than when you're 50 and 60. And you should enjoy it now. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. There are ample opportunities to make money. Some days you'll have shifts you make more. Some days you'll have shifts you make less. 
but you can't go out thinking that every day you need to make so much. And it, it was a really good lesson in terms of, I wish I had listened, who knows where things would be. But I think the key is that one needs balance. I think this generation naturally seems to be more balanced than we are, we were, Vu. But I think that's an important thing, which is, I don't think working like that is healthy. I think you want to work less and make more. And that's the success of being a financially sound physician. Right. And, and, I, and I just want to harp on that point that being financially sound doesn't mean making more money. It just means being smart with how you make your money and how you spend your money, but also being financially secure. And financially secure just means that you have something to fall back on. It doesn't mean that you're in the millions, et cetera. It just means that you know where you're going and you're comfortable with where you're going. And that comfort doesn't mean uh, a lot of money. It could be little money, but as long as you see the comfort in it. And, and, and again, everybody sees comfort at a very different level. But you brought up another point that is very important is in our day and age, emergency medicine, it's not possible to do 20, 25 shifts. So having to you know, uh, shoulder several financial commitments, it's definitely important to have you know, you call it, I call it a side hustle, a side gig, some passive income or something where it's a more stable nine to five and, and not relying on government income is definitely, uh, I think, another step that needs to be taken. And, and all this is really to not exchange our life energy for money. One of the nice things about being self-employed is you control your income but you have to do it with controlling it in the realms of your relationship and your life and your health. And yes, you can make more. And you and I both know there are people we work with who finish a shift and go to the next hospital for the next shift. And, and, and I know someone who on this podcast has done stuff like that before. And I just guilty, sometimes guilty. Roll, my, <laughs> I roll my eyes. It's like, aren't you done for the day? How are you? You did a family practice all day and now you're going to shift. I mean, at the end of the day is you got to stick around and, and you can make all this money, but if you're not here to spend it or enjoy it, it's not worth anything. Thank you very much, uh, Dave, for, you know, uh, sharing your, first of all, your insight about this and uh, your life story. And I, I, I think that the audience will definitely benefit from our discussion. Uh, we didn't we didn't teach anybody anything new today, but I think what we convey today is some life experience and wisdom. So Thank you very much, Dave, for coming on the show. My pleasure, Vu, and keep uh, coming up with innovative talks. I love listening to these. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the second part of the uh, podcast, where we talk a little bit about the family laws surrounding the different relationship models. I'm using as reference uh, the book by Christine Van Kovenberg. The book is called Wealth Planning Strategies for Canadians 2021 by the publisher Thomson Reuters. It is a very good book. It's actually a quite an encyclopedia. It's very thick uh, if you want to become a certified financial planner. Uh, but for me, it was just out of curiosity and interest. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the audience just a snippet of what the different family laws and their financial implications could mean. So we're gonna start with the first model, which is the common law model. So many people are under the impression that their financial and legal situations will be simpler if they choose not to get married, but it's generally not the case. 
the law with respect to common law couples is in a state of flux across Canada and has undergone tremendous changes over the past number of years. Many jurisdictions have implemented legislation which is inconsistent with the application of federal statutes. Uh, what it means is that although common law couples may have certain rights normally reserved for married couples, they may not have others. So the legislation across the country varies quite dramatically. So common law couples must understand the laws of their jurisdiction. So when it comes to family law, many common law couples assume that since they are treated the same as married couples under the Income Tax Act, they will be treated the same as married couples for all other purposes. However, this is not the case. So most family laws are governed by provincial legislation and the laws across Canada are extremely inconsistent with one another. Almost all Canadian jurisdictions provide that common law couples may seek support from their partners if they meet certain conditions. But in Quebec, de facto couples are not entitled to support no matter how long they've lived together. Only married couples and couples who register as civil unions are entitled to make a claim for spousal support in Quebec. Another interesting fact is that unlike married couples, common law partners do not have any statutory right to a division of assets upon relationship breakdown in many jurisdictions in Canada. Therefore, if all of the assets have been accumulated in the name of one partner, the other partner will not automatically be entitled to share in those assets. However, even if you live in a jurisdiction in which it does not give you the right to apply for division of family assets, this does not mean that that person is not entitled to the partner's property under any circumstance. The person may be able to file a lawsuit arguing there has been unjust enrichment on the partner's part and therefore should either be awarded damages or be part of the property. Here is another interesting and important fact. So individuals who enter a common law relationship with a person who has a dependent child uh, must be prepared to for the possibility that they may be required to provide ongoing support to that child even if their relationship ends. If a court finds a common law partner to be in loco parentis, which essentially means that the person has taken on a parental role, that partner may have the same financial responsibilities as a natural or adoptive parent. As mentioned earlier, there are many differences across provinces in Canada when it comes to the definition of common law. So in Ontario, because I live in Ontario, specifically the definition is as such. A common law partner is defined as a person who has cohabited with another person in a conjugal relationship, either continuously for a period of not less than three years, or in a relationship of some permanence and they are the natural or adoptive parents of a child. But if I look at the definition in Quebec, and since Quebec is not a common law province, but is instead governed by a civil code, unmarried couples are referred to as de facto couples. And so de facto couples generally do not have property rights, no matter how long they live together. Although the Quebec pension plan considers a de facto partner to be a spouse if they have either lived together for at least three years 
or they have lived together for at least one year and have either a natural or adopted child. In Quebec, unmarried couples may also choose to enter into a civil union, in which case they will be effectively treated like married couples for virtually all purposes under Quebec law. In Quebec also, the facto couples are currently not entitled to make an application for support. A partner in a civil union will be entitled to apply for support. Okay, well, what about family property rights? Partners to a de facto couple are not entitled to a division of family property. And partners to a de facto couple have no rights regarding possession of a family home that are not registered in their name. In Ontario, only married couples are entitled to apply for equalization of family property under the family property legislation. So upon relationship breakdown, a common law partner may either rely on the provisions of a cohabitation agreement or rely on a lawsuit against the other partner. So now what happens in the case of the married couple in that model? Well, like David mentioned, nobody thinks about the possibility that their marriage could be ending. Uh, and in reality, it could happen. So even if you don't perceive yourself to be wealthy or in need of a prenuptial agreement, it is important that you're aware of the family property rules in your province. Some may be better to consider a prenuptial or a marriage contract. In particular, early discussions regarding finances may decrease the tension in blended families, situations where one spouse has significantly more wealth than the other, or one spouse will give up his or her career for the sake of the relationship. In families where one spouse has brought in asset with significant emotional attachment, such as, for example, a vacation property, a business or an heirloom, or in situations where the spouses have significantly different spending patterns or views towards debt. After a relationship breakdown, there are significant differences among the different provinces in how property and assets are being devised. So again, I'm just going to highlight a few examples. And by all means, I'm not a lawyer, so just take this as a learning point that there are differences among the provinces and know which province does what. And so, for example, in, in terms of asset acquired prior to time of marriage, I've addressed this with uh, David. Uh, most people assume that it is only the assets which are acquired during the course of the marriage which are shareable. However, in Newfoundland, in Ontario, the province which we are in, and Saskatchewan, the marital home may be shareable, even if it was acquired by one of the spouse prior to the time of marriage. In Nova Scotia, for example, all family assets may be shareable, regardless of when they were acquired. And in Manitoba and New Brunswick, assets acquired in contemplation of marriage may be shareable. In addition, if you add your spouse as a joint owner to an asset that you owned prior to the date of marriage, then the asset may become shareable, regardless of when you have acquired it. When it comes to family businesses, some jurisdictions include businesses as family assets, 
whereas some jurisdictions do not. So even in jurisdictions where businesses are generally not shareable, they may become shareable if the spouse makes a contribution to the business, whether direct or indirect. Do not assume that inheritances and gifts from third parties are always exempt from a division of family property. In some jurisdictions, they are not. And in other jurisdictions, the inheritance or gift may only be exempt if it has been kept separate and not used for family purposes. When it comes to the family home, most individuals assume that both spouses have the right to possess the family home. And in most cases, that's true. However, if you live in a family home that belongs to the spouse's parents, and if the spouse passes away, then the remaining spouse does not have eligibility to the family home. As you can see, there are many differences and inconsistencies across all the provinces in Canada, in particular when it comes to Quebec and the definition of common law, which does not exist. They are called de facto couples and have very different rights. So while we talk of rights between spouses in very general terms, one needs to really make sure in which jurisdiction you belong to and what are the specific laws applicable to your jurisdiction. A marriage breakdown is definitely a devastating event in a person's life from an emotional, psychological, and financial perspective. While I'm not sure what the answers are to prevent a divorce, but I think what David said really rings true is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So take time and energy and effort to really nurture your relationship with your spouse and your children. Because at the end of the day, money can always be made, but you cannot take the time back that you've lost with your spouse and your kids. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you have, please share it with your colleagues and your friends and follow on the podcast so that you get notification the moment a new episode is published. Please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com if you have any comments or suggestions for future topics. I'm really looking forward to your comments and to your suggestions. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial tax investment or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.